Stay tuned for The Turning Point with Mike Fader. It's not just the song. It's not. Just, it's not just the song, and uh, the beauty of her singing. It's not just the glory of her singing. It's the whole production. I mean, if you listen to it, and I've listened to it, you know, what a thousand times now. Um, the um, the way the the music the the way the whole thing is scored. You know, with the brass in the back and the, the drum, and it's just extraordinary. And the bass uh, and the piano. It's just. Uh, one of the most amazing pieces of music. And the more you listen to it, the better it gets. A thousand times is not enough. <clears throat> a thousand and one times would be a good way to start. Well, I should give you some fair... Here's fair warning. Fair warning. I'm in the mood to talk about mortality today. There are things going on 
in my life and just things in general. I'm in the mood to talk about mortality. So if you're not in the mood, um, and that's a, a bit of a euphemism, we're going to talk about dying, death, mortality. You try to avoid those words, right? Everybody just runs for, runs for cover. I understand. If you're not in the mood to hear about anything like that, um, and yeah, you know, I like I say, I can understand. Just tune away, tune away, and catch the next show when I will be my usual jolly, positive, sunshiny self. You can count on that. But before I get into that, here's a question. Has spring finally arrived? Has it finally arrived? It's been spring-like the last couple of days, but I'm not easing up yet because uh, up until this just passed this Wednesday, uh, it was more like uh, winter around here. And you, I mean, if you live in the Northeast, you know what I'm talking about. Maybe it's the same way in the Midwest or the, even in parts of the Southeast. Because um, just this past Tuesday, they were predicting snow, and I was still wearing my um, winter coat and my dorky, very dorky-looking fake fur hat <laughs> with the side flaps that makes me look like I'm in the sixth grade, you know, the fourth grade, the third grade, and my gloves. I'm wearing all that. I was wearing all this on Tuesday, right? And they were, they're protecting snow, which didn't arrive. But uh, and I go to the National Weather uh, Service. Uh, did you, you check the National Weather Service online? You put in your zip code or you put in your Akron, Ohio, or whatever the zip code is, you know. And it'll tell you what the weather's going to be. And they're usually pretty accurate. <clears throat> But uh, more often than not, it'll, there'll be a sort of a pink warning, a sort of pink-red, slightly red warning banner across the top where uh, before you start reading your uh, local weather, and it'll say, hazardous weather conditions, hazardous weather conditions. And you go down, you go down to it, and it says there's a 20% chance of rain, and it'll be 42 degrees. The, by them, this is hazardous. <laughs> I mean, what is not hazardous? Everything is hazardous. Everything. Everything. Just like when you read enough stuff online, you read the newspapers or whatever, uh, you will discover ultimately that every single thing you eat is poisoning you. And um, there's nothing you can eat that will make you... There's some things you can eat to make you feel better, but they'll tell you that next week, the week after. So hazardous weather conditions. But it's been cold here. Uh, but I, I hope these couple of days, it's a couple of nice days here. Um, and today it's supposed to go actually sort of so high up in the temperature. It's weird, of course, global warming. It'll be like summer. But I hope it's the beginning of a permanent seasonal switch. And I hope the wind shifts from the north uh, and the northwest to the south and the west because I'm sick to death of winter like everybody else. <clears throat> I'm sick of it. I mean, because uh, when it's cold... Uh, up where I live in Manhattan. I live on uh, sort of a high part of Manhattan, and I live near the river. And, and there's a certain, um, you know, conflation of uh, geographical shapes and uh, locations where I live where it gets very cold. And the wind, and the wind is really extraordinary. It comes whipping down Broadway, and it's like Arctic. You know, it can be really cold. <clears throat> I mean, it can knock people over. I've seen it, I've seen it almost like push people down. Um, and it's, it's, it's a funny situation because the sun is out, you know, the sky is bright, it's blue, the birds are out hopping around and chirping like mad, but the temperature is in the 30s or 40s. And at one point this week, it was actually below freezing. So it's, uh, it's a bizarre, uh, you know, bizarre um, joining of things. And I was worrying. I mean, somebody has to worry, right? 
and it's my job. I was worried about the flowers and the trees. I've seen a few, cro- a few crocuses. I've seen some crocuses. Uh, and By the way, is it crocuses or is it croci? <laughs> I don't know. I never took Latin. I have no idea. Crocuses. But I have seen a lot of daffodils and forsythia and pansies. In the last few days, a tremendous number of daffodils, forsythia and pansies, beautiful yellow, this beautiful yellow color, spring flowers. And the trees seem to be doing all right. So I guess nature doesn't need my help. That's a load off, right? <clears throat> I can concentrate all my, uh, all my helping on something else. There's a, and you know, there's this feeling when spring, there's a general feeling of rising expectations when you see days like this, when, when you, some, a few spring days show. You always get it when the first signs of spring appear. You know, finally, you hope, the end of the relentless cold and grinding grayness of winter. I mean, just when it feels like it will never end, you feel the warmth of the sun on your face and you hear the birds, fresh and eternal. It's, you know, it's every year this has been going on. I, but though the signs of spring are all around now, the winter seems to be, I have to say, it's sort of hovering. It's hovering just on the periphery. I feel like it's ready to pounce again, you know? Um, so you can't be absolutely settled into spring yet. So you're sort of uh, tentative. And this, in, this tentativeness brings on a feeling of frustration. Uh, you know, the sap, even the uh, few pitiful ounces of sap that I have left because I'm old, the sap wants to rise. I mean, you want to take off your 400-pound suit of armor winter coat, and you want to stow the gloves and the hat, and you want to welcome the turn of the year. But it'll come when it comes. I mean, you can't rush spring. You can't rush any season. It's a fool's errand. It will come when it comes. Just like love and death, it'll come when it comes. Speaking, speaking of death and its many signs and symbols, there is one particular bird that arrives in my neighborhood right around March or April, the morning dove, and that's spelled M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. It's called that presumably because of the distinctive sound it makes. I think we have a couple of, uh, yeah. Yes, I went out into nature with my microphone took tremendous chances just to bring that back to you. And uh, YouTube helped, but uh, I was out in the wild there. That's what morning doves sound. But they, actually, they sound they don't sound so high-pitched. The morning doves um, who uh, hang out outside my window um, uh, have a much sort of lower, so it's more of a, you know, ooh, ooh, ooh. And it's, uh, it's mournful. I mean, that's why they, you know, presumably that's why they're called that. I mean, I checked on Wikipedia. It appears that the morning dove occurs all over the country. Uh, there's very few birds that have such a countrywide spread. It's not just outside my apartment window on the Upper West Side. I mean, they're everywhere. If you look at the map, everywhere in the country, morning doves, which is interesting. Um, how they arrive outside my window is among the many wonders of nature that occur every spring. My apartment is on the sixth floor of a 16-story building. It's surrounded by other very tall buildings. So these birds have to somehow find their way back here where my apartment is, and they do. Amazing. Every spring. 
every spring. I'm, I'm not sure what the lifespan of a morning dove is. I didn't remember that from Wikipedia. Maybe the doves I'm hearing outside my window now are the same ones from last year. I mean, I can't actually recognize them. I couldn't. I didn't lean out and tag one of them, you know, like it's not a nature show. Um, or maybe it's the babies, you know, the little baby morning doves who grew up. What's the word for it? Brood? Is it a brood? <laughs> that would be appropriate, right? A brood of morning doves? Anyhow. Yeah, so maybe it's the babies returning to the same spot mom and dad came to last spring. Uh, and uh, it's probably just something that's passed down mysteriously, you know, from one family group of birds to the next generation. An inbred instinct, you know, like salmon swimming up the same stream or tortoises finding the same stretch of beach to deposit their eggs or lobbyists knowing just which politician to bribe. It's something that just, uh, you know, it's something that you inherit, something that comes down in the DNA. Whatever it is, I'm glad that they, the birds, not the politicians, found their way back to where I am. I'm happy for any signs of nature to show up in the otherwise inanimate, I mean, like dead-end brick, stone, and metal compound that I live in. Um, sometimes uh, when spring comes, I have to walk out, go to, get dressed and go down to walk out to the front of the building and go outside where it's sunny. <laughs> the front of my building faces uh, south, and uh, so it's sunny there, bright sun all day long. It's a big, wide street. And right across the street are, uh, is a place sort of unusual these days where I live where there aren't any particularly tall buildings. So the sun is basically shining all day long. So some, that's, that's I live in the back now. Uh, generally speaking, when they aren't pointing, pointing the building and drilling, which makes it sound like you're uh, in the dentist's office forever, um, when they aren't doing that or dogs aren't yapping or whatever, it's very quiet. And that's the benefit of being in the back away from everything. But what you miss is the sunshine and a view of the sky. You just don't get it. So, um, you know, I have to go down. <laughs> this is city life, right? Go downstairs, go out in front of the building and walk around, get some sun. Anyhow, the, um, um, the sound of the morning doves, and then that sound is really just, if you've ever heard, have you heard morning doves? Just an astounding, just really... Uh, amazing sound because it brings out so much. It's uh, it, it evokes so much. It has a tranquil, soothing effect. But still, after all, they're not called morning doves for nothing, right? I mean, no matter how gentle and like disarming the sound is, it's also inevitably ominous. There's an ominous, alarming sound, especially if it's a dark, overcast day. They were they were there. They're there every day. These days. I don't know when they go away. Sometime. In the middle of the summer or sometimes it's just when they fly away somewhere else where they're called, where they need to be, part of the big picture that I am not uh, clued into. But um, when, when it's a dark overcast day and in the back of my building and uh, it's sort of hanging, one of those days where you just you could feel it in the air, the things are just hanging there, not in a good way. <clears throat> and then you hear this, you know, this cooing, this ominous cooing. It's, uh, it can get to you, right? can get to you, make you start to think about things. And it's a, the sound, like I say, is so evocative. I mean, when I hear that sound, sometimes I have this image of women dressed in black with their heads bowed, standing very still next to a bedside or a grave. And since I am always afraid that the big adios is right around the corner, I am, and I'm very superstitious. Uh, the first time I hear these doves each spring, I think, okay, 
That's it. Time to pack my bags, make sure all my stuff is in order, because that's it. Time to go. They know something I don't know, right? And uh, who knows, right? Things are happening now. Uh, I look out the window there, and uh, I look out my kitchen window, and um, there I see crouching for shelter. They're like right under my air conditioner. There's the dove. It's not they. It's one. Absolutely beautiful creature. Beautiful to see. Not too large, kind of round and soft with a small dark beak and small dark eyes. But they're not beady eyes. They, uh, they're, they're kind of, even though they're small and they're black, they're sort of luminous, like black pearls. And the uh, feathers are a combination of sort of woody tan and pearl gray. And they have um, <coughs> small uh, round black markings on the feathers. They look very sweet and very gentle and um, peaceful. They have a, a resigned, somewhat uh, melancholy look, which makes sense. As if it looks like they regret having to be a downer, like they're apologizing for having brought you bad news. It's not like some big, they're not like some big nasty who gives a shit whatever you're, you know, ready or not, crow. <laughs> crow just barges right in on you and just does what it does. Uh, no, uh, you know, gentleness, no subtlety to a crow. And it's not, they're not like, uh, they're the opposite of some evil, demented looking vulture, right? It's, uh, it's not even like some stupidly upbeat robin or a maniacally chirping sparrow. None of this, none of that. The dove is quiet, gentle, and peaceful. Uh, although I consider it truly ironic that the morning dove is both a sign of spring, the time of birth and rebirth, and a messenger telling you that the last chapter may actually be here. Well, whatever they are, they are a sign of spring, and they're very welcome. I wondered, lonely as a cloud that floats on high or vales and hills, when all at once I saw a crowd, a host of golden daffodils, beside the lake beneath the trees, fluttering and dancing in the breeze. Continuous as the stars that shine and twinkle on the Milky Way, they stretched in never-ending line along the margin of a bay. Ten thousand saw I at a glance, tossing their heads in sprightly dance. The waves beside them danced, but they outdid the sparkling waves in glee. A poet could not but be gay in such a jocund company. I gazed and gazed, but little thought what wealth the show to me had brought. For, oft, when on my couch I lie, in vacant or in pensive mood, they flash upon that inward eye, which is the bliss of solitude, and then my heart with pleasure fills, and dances with the daffodils. I'm as restless as a willow in a windstorm I'm as jumpy as a puppet on a string I'd say that I had spring fever But I know it isn't spring I am starry-eyed and vaguely discontented Like a nightingale Without a song to sing Oh, why should I have spring fever 
When it isn't even spring I keep wishing I were somewhere else Walking down a strange new street And hearing words that I have never heard From a girl I've yet to meet I'm as busy a spider spinning daydreams I'm as giddy as a baby on a swing I haven't seen a crocus or a rosebud or a robin on the wing But I feel so gay in a melancholy way that it might as well spring it might as well be spring Speaking of great arrangements, and what a terrific song that is. What a terrific song. <clears throat> and what an incredible voice, right? Frank Sinatra. Well, speaking of the signs and symbols of mortality, morning doves, uh, and since I am no spring chicken, I had me an appointment with the cardiologist the other day. Yes, sir. Time to check in with the old ticker doc to see how things are going. Why am I talking like this? Why am I talking in Western talk? <laughs> I watch too many movies. Uh, or maybe it's a sign of approaching senility. Could be. Uh, approaching very quickly. I wonder, I wonder if I'll be one of those sweet, dove-like old doddering people. Or maybe I'll be a nasty, irritable old coot. You know? I wouldn't put my money, though, on sweet and dove-like. Because I think the way it works out, that when you start to lose your... Um, faculties, you generally revert to the way you behave most of your life. That's how I think it works. If you, for like, so if you were always good-natured, you might become even more so, right? There's an old lady in my building. Uh, she must be uh, close to 80 or maybe over 80. <clears throat> and uh, she is slipping rapidly into advanced dementia, which is pretty sad to see. I talk to her husband sometimes, and 
know, he loves her very much. He's been with her for 61 years, but he shakes his head. What can he do? You know, he's, uh, he's got a lot of money uh, that he made during the course of his life doing various things. <clears throat> so he's hired a lot of help to be with her all the time because he's got you know, some physical problems himself. But he says, you know, it's sad, you know, to see her uh, so different in a way. And yet he said, not so different. So it's disconcerting, disconcerting. Uh, and most of the time, this woman is very friendly and sweet, extremely friendly and sweet. But she was always that way. See, that's the deal, right? She was always that way. But what if you were someone who was always selfish and impatient, right? And maybe had a mean streak. I think it all just becomes more pronounced. I think that's the way it works. Well, who knows? Maybe when the usual intellectual, emotional, and societal defenses and pretenses start to crumble, you return to the way you were when you were a child. Uh, in that case, my prognosis might be good because I remember, and I have a couple of very cute little pictures to show it, that I was a relatively happy and generous little guy. I was, way once upon a time, long time ago, <laughs> 70 years ago now, when I was uh, two years old. And I'm going to be 73 in June, if I make it. <clears throat> anyway, <clears throat> sorry. Before I interrupted myself here, before I went off on this, you know, this wandering journey uh, of words here, I was, uh, I was headed, that's where I was going. I was headed over to the cardiologist's office. So let's go, let's go. Here we go, boys and girls, to the cardiologist's office. Over to the Upper East Side of Manhattan, where all the doctors are, where I've spent so much more of my time than I should have for the last 30 years. Uh, well, you know, home is where the heart doctor is. That's what I always say. There, there are probably, considering the fact that three of the largest hospitals in New York City are within 10 blocks or so of this guy's office, there's probably 200 cardiologists right around where he is. He is, you might say, in the heart of cardiology country. Uh, sorry, I know it's... it's, it's <laughs> these puns could go on forever, so I'll stop. I'll stop. Uh, my wife uh, has kindly taken the time to come with me uh, for this visit. In case after my examination I get some terrible news, like, for instance, you're as healthy as a horse. I mean, why would that be terrible news? Because then I'd have to scramble like mad to find something else to worry myself sick over. Uh, once I was uh, complaining about something a couple of years ago, I was complaining about something down here at the radio station. So, uh, somebody wasn't doing their job right. Some and I was complaining to, um, to Gary Null, who happened to be on the spot that day. And um, and he came and started talking to me, and he said, you know, you're just imagining this. You know, there's nothing going on here. There's no, this, this person does not dislike you, whatever it was I was complaining about. You know, it could have been a million things. And I said, well, you know, I really don't like to complain. He said, no, you do like to complain. That's what you do, Mike. <laughs> Gary, Gary getting to the heart of things, should pardon the expression. Um, anyhow, my wife is there, and, uh, you know, she's, uh, she's with me, right? So we sit in the waiting room, and the secretary is on the phone with the other patients or a health insurance company or a hospital, the usual. You know, you go into a doctor's office. Uh, I don't know. It's like where you go. You go to a clinic or you go to your regular doctor or specialist. <clears throat> they have one person there who's like, uh, who answers the phones and makes appointments. But uh, that person and sometimes one, two, three, four other people, depending on how big the practice is or what the specialties are, 
are hired to deal with insurance companies or with Medicaid or Medicare. That's what they're there for all day long, to be put on hold, to talk to these people, to, re, to, to be rejected, to be hung up on, have to call back. This is, they have the patience of Job, these people, the patience of Job. I see it's mostly women who do this, and I'm not, not exactly sure why, but I think they're not as irritable and confrontational as men because when you call up, uh, you know, like a health insurance company, good fucking luck, right? Uh, first of all, you know, uh, please listen carefully because the menu options are always changing, right? Impermanence. <laughs> no menu option stays the same. That's what the Buddha said originally. Anyhow, so you have to, you know, go with the menu and then you listen to some stupid music and then advertisements for whatever the doctor's office or the, or the business and uh, on and on and on. And uh, please hold on. Your call is very important to them. Your call is so important to them that they would die if you were to hang up. Please hang on. Your call is so important to them. Anyhow, so there was women there, you know. So anyhow, this, the secretary is there. And she's answering the phone and she's talking to health insurance companies. She's talking to hospitals. She's making appointments. <clears throat> and she's picking up the phone. People call, right? And, uh, you know, my wife is is there because she's worried because, I, you know, four years ago I had this aneurysm. Going to the heart doctor is not a simple visit for me. And I have certain symptoms, right? And um, uh, <clears throat> so there I am in, in the cardiologist's office. And outside, outside, and this is where it starts to get dissociated, where everything starts to divide in a very bizarre way. Not that I don't feel that way most of the time, anyhow. But here I am sitting in the heart doctor's office. Who knows what might happen or what he's going to tell me. And outside, completely, there are tens of in New York, right? Thousands of people are passing by on Park Avenue in cars and trucks. Uh, well, there's no trucks on Park Avenue. But cars and vans, you know, they're passing by and they're walking by. They don't know I'm there. They don't know I could be under a death sentence. They don't know me. They don't even know I'm in there. This is the strange part about being in a city. I mean, people complain about small towns, I know, because everybody knows your business. Everybody knows who you are, what's happening to you. It could be maddening. People get out of there. You come to the city. The opposite happens in a place like Manhattan where you could be dying or walking on the street and feeling insane or, or just have heard the worst possible news or be in need of comfort. And people, thousands of people will pass you by. They don't even know you're there. So this is the city, right? And um, <clears throat> I have... Uh, I have, uh, I'm sitting there, and, and it's a long wait. There's other, everybody there's old, <laughs> except for my wife, who's somewhat younger, right? And, uh, you know, you wait, and you wait, and you wait. And uh, you know how it is if you're waiting in a specialist office, especially if you've had some condition that's not good. Uh, and you're waiting there, and you get more, and no matter how composed you make yourself be, or how quiet and patient you can be, um, things happen in your eternal, internal uh, uh, ecosystem there. I mean, you could uh, you have choices. You could allow yourself to just slip into, uh, first of all, there's boredom, but then you can get angry, you know. When is he going, what, 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 what's taking so long? But then you don't want him to be to see you, <laughs> you know. What, why is he taking so long? And let him take forever, you know. Uh, you know, you may not want to sit somewhere else, but uh, maybe you don't want to hear what he has to say. Anyhow, my wife is uh, <clears throat> somebody who's extremely patient, Um uh, she just sort of grew up that way, and <clears throat> her job is uh, requires tremendous patience. So she used to be there. Uh, so we're sitting there waiting, and um, 
<clears throat> to make matters all the more interesting, while we're sitting there, at one point, uh, the secretary, who has a very loud, piercing voice, kind of person who's, uh, I'd say she's a, a nice person, but not what you would call super sensitive, right? And um, she takes a call from a patient, and I hear naturally only her side of it, right? So I hear, oh, hello, Mr. Altman. What? You're having chest pains? Where are you, Mr. Altman? Mm-hmm. And how long have you been having these chest pains? And by now, of course, everybody in the office, my wife, the other patients, uh, <clears throat> most of them, like I say, are old like me. They're in the waiting room, and uh, they're listening very carefully, very intently to this call, right? And the uh, secretary is talking. She says, okay, Mr. Altman, please hold on while I speak to the doctor. So she puts the guy on hold, who presumably is out there in the city somewhere. We don't know. And uh, she gets on the intercom and tells the doctor out loud, so we can all hear this too, right? about uh, Mr. Altman's uh, chest pains. <clears throat> and she listens for a minute, and she gets back on the phone with uh, poor Mr. Altman. Um, and she says, and we're all listening to this, Mr. Altman, the doctor says that if you keep experiencing chest pains, you should get in touch with your primary care physician, and the doctor wants you to call him tomorrow. What? <laughs> this is a cardiologist, right? He's probably had people you know, have heart attacks in his office or die right in front of him. And when he goes to the hospital, he deals with people who are on the edge all the time. But here's a guy. So the only thing I'm thinking is that Mr. Altman is like me. If he pulls a tiny muscle or has a gas pain anywhere near his heart, <laughs> in his upper stomach, he thinks he's going to die. So maybe he's used to Mr. Altman. That's all I can think of because otherwise... This is very, uh, this is callous, and it's not an encouraging feeling to have when you have a history of cardiac trouble and you're just about to go into the examining room. Anyhow, finally, the nurse calls me in, and I lie down on the examining table so she can fix, the first thing to do is going to fix the various wires to my chest to take an EKG. You put that uh, <clears throat> disgusting gel on, you know, and then they fix that stuff to you. So I'm lying there. <clears throat> and I'm allowing myself to calm down. So even if I have something awful wrong with my heart, why am I doing this? I'm deliberately calming down. I will fool the machine into thinking I'm okay, right? The machine doesn't know. Can you beat a lie detector? Can you beat an EKG? Anyhow, I'm, gonna, I'm calm here. So, the EK, even, so even if I'm dying, the EKG won't find out. What am I achieving by this? Who knows? Uh, also, and this is the most disturbed part of my behavior, uh, and there are complex psychological reasons for it. I actually do feel calm at this moment that I am being examined and I'm being nursed and I'm being cared for and professionals with their white coats are around. It calms me down. It calms me down. If you're a lifelong patient like I am, you become addicted to being taken care of by doctors. You know, you need another fix or a nurse. <clears throat> Anyhow. So she gives me the test, and uh, she says she's going to print it out and show it to the doctor, and she leaves the room telling me to wait, and the doctor will be right in. So I lie there in that sterile sort of, you know, the, those doctor's offices, right? It's sterile, and uh, the room has got all the, you know, it's all clean, and uh, it's got, uh, you know, washable, <laughs> washable tile squares on the floor. I don't know what the stuff is made out of. And... You know, I'm lying on a table, of course, and I'm looking up and uh, looking around. You know, what do you do when you're waiting, when you're waiting for the doctor to see the results of the test? And then he's going to come in and examine me, too. Uh, 
And who knows what's going to happen? This is not, you know, you're not in there because you have a cold, right? So, and, and the room is, like I say, it's sterile. You know, you've been in a million, everybody's been in these examining rooms. I mean, there are, you know, uh, boxes of, uh, of rubber gloves. Uh, there are the whole shelf top there at, at uh, belt level is full of uh, instruments. There's medical instruments. They're all clean. There's tubes of ointment. There's, um, as I look around, there's a scale, of course. There's a blood pressure monitor, naturally. There's a computer there where he enters all this information. He's a very modern-type doctor. Everything goes on the computer. <clears throat> While he's talking to you, he's working on the computer, which irritates me, but he's a nice guy. He's very, very technical-minded. He likes all this stuff. And so, and all this is happening here, and I'm on my own. I'm waiting for the door to open, waiting for the test results. And outside uh, of this office, only 30 feet away, my wife is waiting. But at this point, she could easily be 100 miles away because now I'm in doctor land. It's a kind of existential uh, Bermuda Triangle. I am uh, becalmed, and I'm separated from my regular life of everyday trials and tribulations. I'm in the theater now. I'm in the big theater. I'm in the wings, potentially waiting to go on for my final performance. And I can't be disturbed by my relationship to anybody else. Um, <clears throat> the final performance is always a solo performance. I, I had a shrink once used to say, used to tell me, he says, uh, I would, you know, like I'm always telling him, I'm afraid I'm going to die or, you know, uh, I might die. You know, it's complaining my whole life, uh, you know, sort of half wanting it and half afraid of it. And he once said to me, he says, you know, this guy was a, um, a bomber pilot in World War II. He wasn't a pilot, actually. He was a navigator. He was 22 years old. But he flew dozens of missions over Germany. And, uh, you know, other planes were knocked out of the air with, uh, with ACAC, with artillery, German artillery, anti-aircraft fire. And his plane got hit a couple of times. People in his plane were wounded. Um, and he survived it. And he was, had a very tough attitude after that. All those World War II guys did. Very tough attitude. Uh, I mean, one time he told me, he says, you know, uh, he'd been listening to me for about a year. He says, you know, the one thing that would make a man out of you, Mike, <laughs> is if you went to war. If you were in a war, you know. It's too bad. He said, it's too bad for you. Vietnam is over. Because you, you would do all right over there. He says, you know, there's a killer in you and you should be able to get it out and then you would, it would straighten you out. Presumably he was talking about himself too. But he wasn't so calm. You know, uh, the killer was still in him. Anyhow, he says, Mike, I'm complaining about death. He says, everybody dies alone. Everybody dies alone. Is that really true? Does everybody, do you, does every, do you die alone? I think I know what he meant by it, right? I mean, when you go off like that, that's it. Your soul makes that solo journey. You're not taking anybody else or anything else with you. Like, you can't take it with you, right? So I'm lying there on this table. And I'm staring at this gray and brown pattern, sort of fireproof ceiling tiles. What is that made out of? I don't know. It used to be made out of asbestos. I don't know what it's made out of now. And I'm thinking about all manner of things. But I'm especially thinking, since I'm in, in a heart doctor's office and I'm always at the risk for another aortic aneurysm or who knows what else with my heart, um, am I, this is what I'm thinking, am I in any condition to shuffle off the mortal coil? Have I done the right thing? by all the people in my life? Barely. In fact, my record in that department is pretty poor. Have I done the right thing by myself? Has I, have I worked as hard 
as I could to express my God-given talents? Have I done justice to what I was given when I was born? Uh, whatever the whatever they talents might be. I mean, not nearly as much as I should have. No, I have not put myself all the way into anything. Well, I have once in a while, and um, you know, what, what does the Bible say? Whatever whatever thy hand findeth to do, do it with all thy might. I have not really pursued that. Anyhow, and I'm thinking, if I were to check out right at this moment. How would things stand for me in the next level of existence? I mean, what would it be like? Uh, it, that's if I believe there is actually an afterlife of any kind. Either like whatever, I'm flitting around God in his easy chair, you know, with wings and a harp. Or like in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, I mean, if you ever read that, which is a fascinating book, you sort of slowly uh, and sometimes painfully, depending on the life you led before, karma, right, you climb upward through various esoteric planes of existence until at last you join the great original void. That's the final destination. And if I imagine that there is such another place, another world, what would my particular journey be like? And I'm lying there and I'm thinking all this and I'm also thinking, is this the place I want to leave from? This bare, sterile, emotionless little room have, have you ever considered this? I mean, like I said before, by now either you've tuned away or you're into it. <laughs> but have you ever considered how and where you would like to die? I mean, this is only for somebody. These are for people who are sort of, uh, who have been young and experienced death or grown up in a place where death was all around them or uh, had an un, un, unnatural, because you're so young, experience with near death or somebody in your family. But mostly what I'm talking to, who I'm talking to here about this, is people who are in their 60s, 70s, or 80s, right? Um, and uh, so maybe you have considered how and where you'd like to, or maybe you haven't considered it. Maybe you've had no reason to, or maybe you just aren't the type that likes to dwell on such things. I know. But I think this is the kind of thing you might think about if you're in a doctor's office whose specialty is a condition that you've almost died from, and not too long ago either. And if you have considered these things, <clears throat> how would you prefer to go out? Here's the questions, right? Question and answer. There's nobody answering. <laughs> how, but you could always send me an email. Let me know. How would you prefer to go out? Like slowly? And, and I'm, not, I'm not talking about years here. I'm talking about, let's say, a couple of months, right? Doctor says, You're, you have about three months at the most. Uh, so you would have enough time if you're healthy to do some things you always wanted to do, but you never got around to doing them, right? Though I can earnestly recommend not going back to a place that you remember fondly. You know, like some people say, oh, I'll go back to see the old homestead or that place where I uh, loved, where it's the best time in my life. No, because you cannot go home again. I mean, that wonderful place that you remember wasn't just a physical location. It was as much your relative youth and your relative health at the time, and maybe dreams you had for your uh, life in the future, and the people who were there too that you remember, but also they were in their youth. So it's a whole different kind of world. And you might go back, and you might find out, which often happens, especially in a, in a city, that everything is uh, different. Everything's been torn down. I mean, basically, they paved paradise and put up a parking lot, and this is the way the city works. Or maybe they put up a tech center. It's better just to return in your memory and let the actual place be, I think. But 
<clears throat> more essentially, I'm thinking, it would be a good idea to go slowly enough <sighs> so you could pull together, you know, as best you're able to, all the various threads of your life, that you had time to pull it all together. Because your life has been kind of a, a, a huge unwoven tapestry of sensations, first impressions, frustrations, right? Elations, physical achievements, starting maybe with your first couple of steps, which I see my granddaughter has done, right? Contemplations, creativity, complex structures of thought, lightning strikes of previously unknown thoughts and feelings, you know, the sudden revelations, uh, and then, you know, the, the first time you ever had sex and other times you had sex and what it all means and you never figure it out. And maybe the first time you fell in love and maybe the last time you fell in love and regrets and the indescribable beauty of those occasional moments in your life where you could be anywhere, sitting on a park bench or working or just sitting there. And um, you have a sudden glimpse of the great, like the harmonious beauty of the universe. So... You know, to expire slowly, hopefully not in an emotion-blurring haze of painkillers, you know, where, where you don't even know what's going on, uh, you get a final chance maybe to make a little sense of your life and say everything to people that you never said when you should have said it, right? Or maybe, maybe you'd like to go uh, suddenly, boom, <laughs> be taken unawares out of the blue. Now you see them, now you don't. They're gone. Uh, I once had a psychic tell me, true, that I was going to die in an explosion. Yes? Just, I was, I was just, she said, you're suddenly just going to explode. You're going to vaporize so that there won't even be a single molecule left of you. Well, that, <laughs> that now she told me that when I was young. And I thought, I was like, I forget, my late 20s or something. I thought this is very cool, what she's telling me. I had a certain dramatic flair to it that appealed to me, right? But as I got older, the novelty of exploding and uh, disappearing. <clears throat> definitely faded, and it disappeared completely uh, altogether after September 11th, 2001. I mean, after that happened, uh, the idea of exploding didn't seem so uh, cool or interesting to me. And I think uh, you'd have to be pretty confident that uh, you've done the very best you could for other people and for yourself to be able to feel happy in contemplating a sudden departure. You know, if you say, yeah, I'm... <clears throat> I want to just go right away. I want to go suddenly. You would have to be sort of uh, have lived a very good life, a very full life. And um, furthermore, I'm, I'm thinking, here's a question. Where would you like to be when the time comes, the actual location? I mean, would you like to be or what your, what your occupation would be when, uh, when the angel comes with the scythe or whatever? Would you like to be working, providing, of course, that you love your work? Maybe if you're an artist, you can imagine having made one last brush stroke on a canvas. Or if you're a musician, maybe you play one last beautiful phrase or note on your instrument and then shh, you're gone. Or maybe if you're athletic, you'd like to be snatched up just when you, uh, you know, you just scored uh, the, the winning run for your team. Or let's say you're in the last mile of some transcendent run. All the people in Riverside Park I see running, they look like they're in another world. And they could just go straight up to the next one, right? Um, <clears throat> anything like that. Or maybe, uh, as far as location goes, you'd like to be in some place which is the very opposite of a doctor's examining room, right? Because you don't want to go from there, right? Lying on a bed with wires and stuff. You don't want to be in a bed in your house or in a... Well, maybe you do, but it depends on the circumstances. You certainly don't want to be in a hospital, 
which, by the way, these days is where most people die. They usually die in their own beds or they die in a hospital bed. Maybe, <clears throat> wouldn't it be beautiful to be in nature? Like you're walking in a forest and the sun is coming through the trees in the afternoon and maybe you're listening to the sound of birds and a stream bubbling just around the next bend in the trail. Maybe you'd like to be swimming. People love water. Maybe you'd like to be immersed in a pool or a pond or a lake or in the ocean. Uh, I can think of one. I mean, I never like being in the water, but I like being on the water in a particular way. I like to go out in a, in a pond or in a lake in a rowboat, throw over um, <clears throat> maybe a little tiny anchor on a summer afternoon and uh, just sit there fishing, the fishing line hanging off. And uh, whether the fish bite or not is entirely immaterial. And you just... Uh, it would be nice to go from that place to the next place or just to stay in that place. That would be nice if that was the next world. You could just fish forever, and a fish doesn't even have to bite. Uh, any, any of these might be an attractive way, depending on what you're like, to spend your last moment. But uh, I look at everybody you know, on the way down here, and I see everybody's necks bent over, staring at their machines. And uh, can you imagine your last moment? is getting uh, a text from somebody who just uh, found a, a, a terrific ice cream parlor or uh, your last moment being when you uh, go on Facebook and find out that uh, find out that there's a kitten for adoption, boom, and then you die. <laughs> uh, what a way to go, right? Uh, anyhow, as for me, and I suspect maybe other people, what I'd like to do is be surrounded by people who I love. That's what I'd like to do. If I'm going to die that way, that would be perfect. I'd like to have my last vision and my last sensations uh, of, of being people who, who are surrounding me, whose existence has made mine truly meaningful, right? People who I love. And especially in the midst of such gathering of kindred souls, I, I, I would like to go out the very way I never lived my life, which is with gentleness, like a dove, with calm thoughts and peace in my heart. Anyhow, there's a poem. Here's a poem that I was looking for poems about death. And here's a poem, and providing I understand it, that uh, I just can't find any comfort with. Um, I think it appealed to me when I was young, but not for a long time now. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Though wise men at their end know dark is right, Because their words had forked no lightning, They do not go gentle into that good night. Good men the last wave by, crying how bright, their frail deeds might have danced in a green bay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Wild men who caught and sang the sun in flight and learned too late they grieved it on its way. Do not go gentle into that good night. Grave men near death who see with blinding sight Blind eyes could blaze like meteors and be gay Rage, rage against the dying of the light And you, my father, there on the sad height Curse, bless me now, 
With your fierce tears I pray Do not go gentle into that good night Rage, rage against the dying of the light An absolutely beautiful poem A beautiful poem But <clears throat> why rage? I mean, that's exactly the kind of violent, inevitably losing battle that, at least for me, that makes life so much harder than it needs to be in the first place. And I've been in sort of a modified and occasionally outright rage all my life. And far from slowing down the approach of dying and death, it's done nothing but hasten it. Nothing. In fact, I'm sure it was my lifelong state of anger, rage, that caused the volcanic eruption in my aorta four years ago. So I say, uh, brothers and sisters, if I say, go as gently as you can into that good night. You're not going to some strange land. You're not going to some cold, distant alien planet. You are, in fact, merely going home.
And uh, this has been Mike Fader. If you want to get in touch with me, go to my website, faderfiles.com, F-E-D-E-R-F-I-L-E-S.com. And as always, thank you for listening. Well, it's all. Someone to tell you everything